Whether you're at a point of having to make a career choice or you simply like to hear what others are passionate about, this podcast is about the workers who make up our nation's economy. I'm your host, Allie Nielsen, and this is Employed. About 95% of inmates release. 95%. And so a lot of times it was difficult because there are some people who think that you know, maybe it's a waste of money to provide treatment. Um, maybe they have their biases about having opportunities to get education. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we were, of course, as social workers, we're really focused on rehabilitation. Right. Because we're saying, you know, these people are going to leave and they're going to move in next door to you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Caroline, for joining me tonight and coming on here just to talk a bit about what you do. Can you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Caroline. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, also known as an LCSW. So I currently work in a hospital with health programs, but prior to my work at the hospital, I worked in correctional facilities as a social worker. And which is what we'll, we'll mostly be focusing on today is your time there. But what sparked your interest in social work? So it's kind of interesting in terms of social work in high school, I thought about working in a few different fields. I kind of wanted to be a teacher. I kind of wanted to work in psychology, but college is a lot of money, college is a lot of time. And I didn't want to put in all of that effort and then just kind of be stuck doing the same thing for the rest of my life. Right. So what happened was about my junior year of high school, my grandmother got Alzheimer's and she lived next to us. And so Um, A lady came, visited our home and talked to us about, you know, my grandmother's process, what Alzheimer's, you know, really looks like, what we should kind of expect. I thought, I wonder what she is. (laughs) So I asked her and she said she was a social worker. And I thought, okay, that's what I want to do. I don't want to just sit behind a desk and do the same thing. I want to, you know, really have that interaction and that movement. So I knew that just the versatility of it was something very interesting to me um, and that it would, you know, work with my personality. So I still didn't exactly know what social work was. I just kind of went for it in college. And I, the more that I learned about it, the more that I liked it. So I've worked in, you know, just a small number of areas in terms of social work, but, you know, I've really enjoyed working in foster care as an investigator. I've worked in prisons, you know, in jails, doing substance use treatment. I've worked with severely mentally ill veterans, you know, and now I get to do the health programs in a hospital. So that's been a a really fun journey. I I think you're so right. I'm sure a lot of social workers and I'm speaking, I don't think a lot of the listeners know that I am also a licensed clinical social worker, but I, I think a lot of social workers can relate that a lot of us went into the field thinking that it was one thing we, we went in for a certain reason to work with a certain population. Right. And then we go through school and realize just how versatile it is and how many different, you can work with any population that you want yes. in social work. So I I'm, think it's kind of a chameleon degree. Yeah, exactly. It, can, it just, you know, it can change in so many different ways, depending on what little niche or area you're in. Right what kind of education and experience is required uh, for your position to become a clinical social worker? So another thing that I got excited about once I entered the field is I realized that after you do a four-year bachelor's degree is, um, you know, your BSW, your bachelor's of social work, you can do kind of 
an expedited program for your master's of social work. Yeah. So you can do that within a 12 month or a one year period and get your master's. And I don't know many other fields where that's available. Mm -hmm. So if you get your BSW, you can get your MSW in a year and, you know, have your graduate degree. So some people choose to, you know, get their MSW, which would be right after your bachelor's degree. Some choose to then take the licensure test, which gives you the LMSW or the licensed MSW degree. And then if you do graduate school, you can then take another exam to qualify yourself for an LCSW, but that also includes doing two years of clinical supervision. So your supervisor, it doesn't even have to be somebody who is within your job. Um, it kind of depends state to state who you can select as a supervisor, but you do two years underneath that. They allow four hours for the exam and it is there was a lot of studying that went into yeah. it. And then an LCSW is kind of, you know, one of the top tiers in clinical work. The other side of it is some people choose just to focus on research and they might go for their PhD in social work and, and go for that area. Another thing to know is that in your undergraduate degree, you do an internship. And then in your graduate degree, you also do an internship. I did not know that. And so <laughs> I thought, how am I going to do an unpaid internship for six months of my life? And I did not prepare to do this. So that is a good thing to know before you go into the field. In corrections, uh, the certification depends on what type of place you work for. So at a jail that I worked at, you had to do a lie detector test, which was very nerve wracking because <laughs> there's something like a hundred different questions and you have a monitor on your finger. They put a monitor around your waist, around your chest, around your arm. So I uh, stopped breathing while they were doing it. <laughs> it was interrupting the data, but I just completely froze up. So that made me even more nervous because I thought it was going to come out that I was lying since I just wasn't breathing. <laughs> but then in another field that I worked in when I was working at a prison, uh, they have an investigator that looks at your background, comes to your home, speaks wow. to you, speaks to your family, because they really have to ensure that you don't have anything in your background that's going to compromise you or to make sure that you're not like the type of personality that's easily easy to be compromised. That was a different qualification. And then once you're hired, um, you do a three-week training course. So you do have to pass firearms testing, do have to do a test on policies. You do have to do physical fitness tests. Can you tell me what the demographics are of the social work field? Have you found that it's mostly a female or male dominated field? So I definitely saw, and I went to school a little bit over 10 years ago, but it was definitely probably 90% female whenever I went. I think that if you Google it, it says that, you know, it's a, a little bit closer to maybe an 80-20. You know, I did see some differences in the demographics in terms of age. And there are a lot of people who were going back to school to do social work. They kind of found that as their passion and, and you know, if you want to go into social work and your undergraduate degree is in something else, but it's kind of related, you know, you can do the, you know, typical two-year program, or you can even do an extended program and still get a social work degree. So we found a great mix of people in our classes who, you know, had maybe studied psychology, maybe they studied counseling or even sociology, 
kind of things in that field and they gravitated towards social work because there's so many benefits to doing that. I know that this will really depend on the state and what uh, position you're in, but what range of salary can someone typically expect to make as a licensed clinical social worker? That does vary. Just to give you an idea, when I graduated, I had my MSW. I think that I got hired at $33,000, which is pretty low for somebody coming out of graduate school, right? But um, there were also some positives to it. There's some different programs where, you know, they may pay for tuition if you choose Mm -hmm. to work there. And that was the situation for me. But, you know, if you work at a state level or at a federal level, you can have a salary $100,000. And so you really see a wide variety there. And I always encourage people that you don't have to work for pennies as a social worker either. You can really find a job that you can live off of. And, you know, that was a relief to me when I graduated. (laughs) And how is your progress measured at your specific field? How do you know that you are, you know, getting a, getting to be a better social worker? So after you become a social worker, if you do choose to get your licensure, you do what are called continuing education credits or continuing education units. And that's to keep you up to date on the research. That's to give you more education on different modalities and different psychotherapies. And so your progress is kind of measured on the education that you seek after your degree. And these have been so beneficial to do because you can, you can just learn so much information that wasn't presented to you in school, or that's really specific to a certain field. So like, for example, um, in working in corrections, they really like to hear that you're versed in cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing, and of course, crisis intervention. Working at the correctional facility, what were your typical work hours? Were they pretty standard or was that kind of a 24-hour job? It, It was a little bit of both. Typically, your work hours are going to be, you know, eight to four, seven to three, but depending on what type of correctional facility that you work in, you know, they, they really want you to be trained as a correctional officer first because safety Mm -hmm. is a first priority. So, you know, if, if they're short on shifts or if you are in a position that's on call, you could be working after hours, you could be pulled to work a unit depending on where you are. Um, so I generally was able to work a pretty normal shift. And Mm -hmm. once I left the doors, I was home, you know, I didn't have to really worry much about work. I didn't carry much of it with me, but that is definitely something to ask. Do I need to work after hours? Am I going to be working in other areas outside of my typical, you know, social worker day? Do you feel like social work allows for you to have a a proper work-life balance? You know, some of that um, comes with the training and experience um, and also the field that you work in. I think that one of the other benefits for social work is that if you're in a field and you find this just is not the fit for me, uh, it is too emotionally taxing. It's too hard for me to separate. You know, I really encourage people to go to a different field, find the thing that you're able to still have you know, a a happy life with, because I think in any profession, you can lend your life to the job and not 
the things outside of it. So um, I'm really lucky that I've been able to find that balance, but initially I didn't and it impacted my health. I remember I went went to the doctor um, and they just did a routine blood pressure check. And I think it was, it was like 163 over 127. And and so he said, okay, you need to make some changes in your life. I actually changed my job and my blood pressure dramatically dropped. Well, that was a a really good segue because I was going to ask you just kind of walk us through an average day at your job. And in my head, it sounds very stressful and very scary. Was it? Let's, let's back up a little bit. When there was a job opening at the correctional facility, was it scary for you to kind of imagine yourself in that role? Was it scary to apply? Cause I feel like I would be really nervous to walk, to, to work in a field like that. So kind of with what you were saying before, how a lot of people think you just work with children. So I was in my undergraduate program and they said, okay, you know, it's time to do internships next semester. It's pretty much 40 hours for six months. And so I looked at the list of, you know, different agencies that I could work with. And I thought, you know, none of these really interest me. None of these are an area I really want to learn in. Internship is a time where you can really jump in and learn and observe and kind of test the waters. So I had asked the field supervisor, I said, can I try something different? Can I try something else? She said, if they agree to having you there, absolutely. And so I remembered that I had done a ride along for a different class with the police department. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I got to be there during an officer's day and go to different calls, which that was a whole other story. I encourage anybody to do that. Most yeah. law enforcement agencies will allow you to do a ride along. But then I thought, you know, whenever I had to go to that ride along, it was connected to a jail. And I wonder if that jail would let me go. So I, I got to do an internship at a county jail and start to kind of feel that comfort level. It is very different if you haven't been here before. Um, you know, it can feel claustrophobic to some people. It can feel really intimidating. But I had, you know, some, some great people to help me. I worked with two other females. And so they were just wonderful guiding lights right. for how to really conduct yourself in a way that is professional, but also to be respected in a very different environment. Mm -hmm. So once I did see an opening, um, you know, down the road, it was probably five years later, it was another female in my life that said, Hey, they have an opening at the prison here. I think that you would be good at this. And so it really was, you know, people that I looked up to that had successfully done it, that made me think, you know, maybe I can really kind of try my hand at this very uncharted area of my life. Mm-hmm. So uh, the average day, um, an example of working in corrections as a social worker. So you dress in the basic approved clothing, then you go through the screening once you arrive at work and you'll go through a metal detector with all your gear there, your phones are not allowed. And then after that, you go into kind of a pod between two closed doors and you match your ID with you for the person who's working behind the pot to make sure that you are who you actually are. And then the control doors open, you typically get your necessary keys. And then depending on where you work, um, they do kind of a checkout system for your other materials. So you might get um, OC or what other people call pepper spray. Um, You may get a radio, you may have to wear a stab vest. And then you actually make it to your work area, walk over there. You might go through some extra 
controlled doors or doors that you can personally unlock. And so the process from whenever you arrive to work to actually getting to your office or your work space can take about 20 minutes. Um, it just really depends on the security level and the type of correctional facility that it's in. And then from there, you know, at one spot, my day included, I moderated a meeting that inmates ran with a program. And, you know, sometimes there were 20 inmates, sometimes there were, you know, over 60 inmates in the meeting room. And so it was like a morning report meeting, there would be weather, news, there would be music, people would talk about their own behavior and how they were trying to change. There would be team games that would, they would make up. I mean, it was really uplifting and positive, which you don't typically think about in prison, but it was just for inmates who were in a specific program uh, who were really trying to get treatment right before they discharge. So I'd monitor that meeting. We would shake hands. We would greet each other. We would use titles. So they would call me Mrs. And then I would refer to them as Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones. And then we would break out into different groups. So I would do a group treatment that was about two hours. I'd use a manual. We would focus on some cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, We would teach some skills, go to lunch. And then because of the process of leaving, almost everybody just eats lunch there. So then after lunch in the afternoon, we would do what's called a process group, which is in a smaller group. Everybody's sitting around in a closed tight circle and it's very structured, but it was also open discussion. You know, inmates would process their behaviors. They would talk about their choices. We would discuss kind of like the dynamic for what's happening in the room. And then in the afternoon, we would do treatment planning. I would help on, you know, planning for release dates and, you know, what things look like up until then. I would work with their individual goals. And sometimes we would do a team meeting with the other staff members and we would pull in an inmate One, if they were doing exceptionally well and we just wanted to give them praise or on the other end, if there were serious behavioral issues, we would do some interventions. We would do some therapeutic techniques to, you know, try to try to change, which is just what we're trying to do as human beings, be a reflection, be honest with them, let them know, Hey, like this is an opportunity to really change here before you leave. Um, You know, like this is such a good time for us to talk about this together. Were for the most part inmates fairly open to meeting with you and, and, you know, accepting of that, or were they very like, did they Mm -hmm. feel forced? Yeah. So I was very aware that I was, whenever I started, I was 24. So I am a 24 year old female coming in and I'm sure I'm just looking like, I think I know what I'm talking about. I have a bubbly personality, you know, on the forefront, it looks like I definitely haven't had any of my own involvement in prison. And so (laughs) I knew that there were going to be those natural barriers. Like what in the world are you talking about? Why would we ever open up to you? It's also interesting because, you know, we're wearing a correctional uniform. And so we're sitting in a room with inmates saying, open up trust me, Mm -hmm. talk about your, you know, deep, dark held in emotions in a group of other inmates that you don't trust, that you have to be with 24 seven after I leave, that you have to deal with the consequences after leaving this room that we say is a safe space. Right. You know, that's a real challenge there, but there is willingness. You know, I think that just for you personally, whenever 
you go into this field of working corrections, you want to be fair and you want to be consistent. And so if you have that consistency, it makes you know what to expect from you. I, I think that anybody can really pick up on if you're genuine or not. If you're genuine in that room and you know you speak from a place of honesty and you push but also give allowance for people just to observe, you know, we I just saw these amazing things happen that I never thought would. You know, wow. being able to be in a room with guys that are tatted up that really you know, feel that they come off as hard. And then by the end of a treatment program, sit together, tears in everybody's eyes, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just really a testament to, uh, to the field of, of social work and then just humanity in general. That's beautifully put. And I, I love how you put that if, as long as you're genuine, did mm-hmm. you find that it was difficult at all to kind of put aside your personal biases when working with this population? If you, I don't know, did you know what crimes they had committed or, you know, why they were in prison and was it difficult to be completely open-minded and and yeah, put aside your personal biases? Mm -hmm. It was difficult, you know, specifically in the area of, I had come just from working with children who were abused, who were in foster care and then working in a prison where, you know, you're doing treatment with some inmates who are sex offenders, wow. you know, really kind of looking internally at you know, how, how am I going to work through this? There are yeah. some deep seated feelings. And I think that generally people have deep seated feelings about mm-hmm. those who do have sex offenses, but part of my job is to know the history. So really reading through kind of their records, seeing where they're coming from and starting to see somebody as a person and not as a crime yeah. um, was helpful for me wow. in discussion. So, you know, there was a lot to work through there, but I, I was grateful that I was in a setting where I could work with inmates for months and for years sometimes and really truly get to know them. And I think that's where the trust comes from is like, okay, we're, you know, we're working on this journey, maybe you're starting it for not the best reasons. You know, sometimes inmates wanted to do the programs for other benefits that were coming along. And we knew that and we were honest and open about it. You know, this is the same thing with substance use. I would always start off a treatment group and say, what do we like about drugs? And that would sometimes (laughs) throw people off. I'd say, come on, guys, you wouldn't do it if there wasn't something that you liked about it, right? We would just kind of open the floor and talk about, gosh, what did we love about that lifestyle? What are the things that we miss about it? Like, let's just talk in these ways that maybe took them by surprise. What is maybe one of the best days or a good memory that stands out to you in that job where, yeah, it was just kind of a testament that, that you, were, you were in the right field? So some of the best days were, you know, just in that interaction with this very unique family of coworkers that you developed. Yeah. Uh, but of course, there's some other amazing days that stand out. So whenever inmates graduate from programs, and earn their degrees and earn their diplomas. It's a wonderful thing to see people use their time to really grow in that way and to have those opportunities. It's a really good day whenever they reach their release date and they get to go home. That's an emotional day. 
one jail that I worked at, whenever the inmates would release, they would actually go to a halfway house that was fairly close because it was a county jail. And so every so often it was approved for us to go to the halfway house because those who had been released would make a spaghetti dinner. So it was always fun to go and see these people that you had worked with that are, you know, wearing jeans, normal clothes, have jobs, are being successful and to see them outside of that concrete environment and just thriving and, you know, showing their thankfulness, those were positive. But I would say if I had to pick out one specific day that stood out to me um, that I can't take credit for, it was actually a psychology intern who thought of this idea. And I was just a small part of the planning. So she had this idea to recognize the inmates at our facility who had served in the armed forces and had been honorably discharged. So we shifted through the documents and through the computer system. And it turned out that there were about a hundred inmates in the facility who had honorably been discharged from the military. So, you know, with the ratio that was one in 10 or one in 15, I mean, a really significant amount. So then what was even more interesting is that we got approval to do a recognition ceremony. There were inmates from every branch of service, from the Korean War to Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and we had several of the inmates speak as to their experience. One thing that we did is we, and we verified this, we asked those to stand up who had earned bronze stars and for those to stand up who had earned purple hearts and, you know, awards of valor. For those inmates that did speak about their experiences, there just really wasn't a dry eye in the room for the staff who attended, for the other veterans who were there who realized, oh my goodness, I am actually around other people who kind of understand and kind Mm -hmm. of get it. You know, my specific journey from being in the armed forces, which, you know, a lot of people really respect and celebrate. And we have these specific days to celebrate that. And now because of choices that were made, being in a completely different spot. So it was just one of those moments when you realize how grand of a scale these stories were, right? Serving in combat, a lot of them coped with combat by abusing substances to support that habit. A lot of them sold drugs to keep up the habit and then got prison sentences. Like it was a very common story that was told. You know, we were walking the hall with these people who have an inmate label, but are pretty much certified American heroes on another end. And that recognition was a real game changer because we got permission for the inmates who had served to wear a laminated tag that said their branch of service if they wanted to, if they so chose. And a lot of them did and just found this pride and this purpose that they had forgotten about. that hadn't been recognized in a long time. And a really interesting thing was there there were several inmates there who were too physically ill uh, to attend or who um, had severe mental illness and weren't able to attend. And so they were personally handed a certificate of gratitude by the warden. And what we saw was a decrease in behavioral instances after that. It was a wonderful day. It just brought a little bit of humanity back to a place where that's not often seen. Yeah, it's almost a way to remind ourselves that these, before coming to prison, these people were people and they all have a story to tell. And that's just incredible. 
about 95% of inmates release, 95%. And so a lot of times it was difficult because there are some people who think that, you know, maybe it's a waste of money to provide treatment. Um, maybe they have their biases about having opportunities to get education, mm-hmm. but you know, we were, of course, as social workers, we're really focused on rehabilitation right. because we're saying, you know, these people are going to leave and they're going to move in next door to you. Yeah. And you've spoken of some challenges, but what, what does a bad day look like at work? What was the challenge that you were frequently facing? Yeah. Well, a bad day is any day that a coworker gets hurt um, or that somebody gets hurt. So, I mean, correctional facilities are dangerous places, sometimes very dangerous places. And I know that that goes without saying, um, even as a social worker, like I said, everybody's considered a correctional officer first. If there's an alarm that goes off, inevitably you're going to see somebody who is hurt. And sometimes you'll be the first one on scene after there's been a fight, after there's been a stabbing, maybe while it's in process. So the balance is very interesting, right? Like you get this rapport with inmates, you work with them for months and for years to work towards their release, creating a good life, making better choices. And then on, and you're in this helper role, but then on the other end, you're in these other moments where with these inmates, you're doing pat downs, you are searching the unit um, and you're always thinking in terms of personal safety. So like to this day, I always face the exit instead of having my back to it. You just remember every day whenever you walk in that others have been killed working in this exact same line of duty. It's very, very sobering. So those are rough days when you see somebody get hurt. But then, you know, on the other side of it, seeing people who are almost at the end of a 20 year sentence for selling marijuana are about to release, but then something happens like a parent passes away, a child passes away before they're able to be home, you know, and you work with these inmates and you just think there is no satisfaction in seeing somebody separated from their family. You know, it's, it's really heartbreaking to experience and to see that that's just, it's not a, it's not a fun day, but then there's some basic challenges like putting social work together with corrections. So in social work, it's really important, like, you know, to build like very professional relationships with your clients and gain some sense of trust and get the therapeutic relationship. But then, like we were saying before, I was 24. I was this <laughs> young female walking in there. And, uh, you know, it was, it was tough to break those barriers, but being able to use the skill training, really keep your cool, you know, and just embracing the resistance. That's mm-hmm. what I was taught because that's where the change is going to happen. Yeah. What is maybe a weird or unexpected experience that happened at work? I really had to filter one that would be appropriate for the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a funny one. I have two stories. This is a funny one. I hadn't thought about this until I was prepping for the podcast. So thank you so much for reminding (laughs) me of this story. So when I was working at the county jail, like any other facility, they do regular counts of inmates to make sure that everybody is there. Yeah. So this time the count came up short. 
um, I think it was one short. And so everything was locked down and somehow the count came up short again, which means that there's probably not a mistake. Something is going wrong. We're sitting in the office because everything's locked down. We can't do treatment. We're listening to the radio and we're just following the story. And what we hear is that they see somebody running behind the jail wearing orange. So a helicopter, of course, gets dispatched, is over there. The brigade is out. People are tracking this person running. And then the communication starts getting a little confusing. It turns out the person running behind the jail was an officer on his lunch break who oh. happened to be wearing a Longhorns jacket that oh, day. That's no. <laughs> why it was orange. <laughs> I can't remember what happened with the count other than it was all fine. Everybody was actually there. It was just the perfect storm. And thank goodness no one was hurt. But I know that the officer was very curious as to like, what is all the action? I wonder why this helicopter is out. And then I, I guess for my unexpected story. So we keep our personal lives very personal on the job, very guarded. I only went by my last name. You know, they didn't know my first name. So but there are some things that you really can't keep whenever you're working, you know, with people 40 hours a week. And so it was pretty obvious that I had gotten engaged because I'm walking in and I have an engagement ring. Um, and then I knew that my last name would be changing. So I was just upfront and honest. I let them know that I got engaged, that I was going to get married soon. So fast forward to me returning to work after the wedding. I have, and I dug it out so you can see it. I know the listeners can't. I have a poster board size card that had been made oh for me. Oh my goodness. It says, congratulations, Mrs. Oh. Dots. As you can see here, there are cut out doves. Yeah. There are embroidered hearts. Let me, let me read this to you. Oh, you open it up and there's um, caterpillars and butterflies. And what this says is, wishing you an amazing journey on your new road wishing that you keep falling in love over and over again. May your wedding day be the start of the best time of your lives. The most heartfelt congratulations to you, the bride and your groom. Best wishes. The inmates of the program I was working with collectively made this for me. I know that some of these guys have been involved in manslaughter. I know that they have committed serious offenses. I know that they have hurt a lot of people. But let me just say, at the end of the day, there was no benefit to the collective group of enemies that I worked with to make me a poster board sized card congratulating me on getting oh married. There's just some things that you wouldn't expect about the culture in prison. So because there's yeah. so much time on your hands, inmates, but there are so many inmates there that are fantastic at crocheting and knitting. Wow. But then another thing is they're fantastic card makers. And one thing that they do is they take the the wax that you use to wax the floor and if you get it hot and you drip it onto a card it kind of creates this 3d effect it was really kind and it just kind of shows you how once you're able to break down those barriers man those are some broken barriers oh, i think hallmark could hire out a little bit <laughs> absolutely so what's next for you what is maybe the end goal for let's just say licensed clinical social worker. I mean, it's obvious that you can kind of jump around, but what's next? I think the end goal is to find a field of social work that makes you feel 
fulfilled and happy. I mean, truly, because to spend time and money going through college to then work a job or to work in an area that you don't enjoy is just not, it's not the end goal. It's not the game plan. So there's so many things you can do. If you're just working in corrections as a social worker, you can prep inmates for release. You can work with drug courts. You can you know, really transfer from state to state. If you're working for federal government, you can be a supervisor. You could eventually be the warden if you wanted to, wow. specifically in that field. Um, LCSWs are highly sought after, but if you're working in the field of social work outside of corrections, you can be an independent practitioner. You could be a professor. You could do research as a PhD. Uh, it's very cliche to say, but the possibilities are really endless. And I think recently social work has started to gain some notoriety and has started to gain some of the respect for what it provides in terms of psychotherapy and treatment, you know, the ability to do diagnoses. And some of that, you know, some of the notable social workers that are getting more media attention, like for example, Brene Brown, people have really gravitated towards her. What advice or takeaway would you want to share with someone who might be interested in becoming a clinical social worker? I say take advantage of those internships. I have seen a lot of people that did the internship that was available to them, but that's the time that you can really mess up and have it be forgivable. So mess up in an environment where you really want to learn, where maybe you never thought that you would be, you know, good at working in that you know nothing about. Grab on, jump in learn from it because afterwards, you know, you're not an intern anymore. (laughs) Take the courses that you want to do in college, not just the ones that are easy, not Mm -hmm. just the ones that you think are like fit in with your schedule well. And then I would say, keep a story journal, stories that you have of the quotes that you hear just to remember where you go, because I've been doing this, like I said, for 10 years and there's details that I want to remember. And even in doing this podcast, I thought I haven't thought about that experience that grew me in a long time. A big thank you to Caroline for donating her time to the show. To see a picture of that card that was made for Caroline, check out our Instagram at employedpodcast. Thanks for listening.